0: Before you sit down, turn around tell somebody how incredible they look today. Come on now, and mean it. And if you don't lie, lie. So my question to you this morning, are we in the dog days of summer? I think we're in the dog days of summer. You know, people people go through kind of the first part of July and June, and it's not so bad. You get up, it's 75 degrees, and then August hits, and September, we get that monsoonal flow and that humidity, and well, we were wishing we were in the Rockies, like some of you people who are watching on uh, live stream this morning. So uh, are you ready for this morning? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this uh, incredible opportunity to meet in an air-conditioned spot here this morning. Father, we, uh, we're so grateful. We're so grateful. We're grateful for your creation. We're grateful that our, for our very existence. Lord, we are not a cosmic chance. We were created with great intentionality, created in your image, which is too unfathomable for us to even comprehend. Lord, we, we ask that you would superintend this morning and, and help us digest your word, which we know is our daily bread. It gives us spiritual life. And only you can do that through your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, well, we're going to press on here. I don't know if you were impacted by last week, uh, just seeing the magnitude of creation and the, the perfection and the, the detail, it's just, it's overwhelming. Um, I want to tell you that if you think about it, you say, well, in light of that, well, some people don't understand what we, even what we talked about last week or haven't heard it before. But in light of that, how can you still turn your back on an intentional mind, at least from maybe doing some more due diligence about your own faith? How is that even possible? And this morning I've entitled the message, there are diversionary tactics, diversionary tactics that are used, and sometimes they're, we're very conscious of it, and sometimes we're even unaware of these tactics that our mind uses to negate an intentional mind. And I'll describe more of that when we get into it. Typically, this passage in Luke 13 is not necessarily used in this, in, in this way. It's usually used in the in the eyes of the big mega question. Usually, there are, say, five, six questions that I get all the time. How does a good God allow evil? How is that possible? And these are usually passages that are used in that capacity. But I want you to think a little more deeply, and we're going to see it from two perspectives this morning and remember this before we start. Jesus had the ability to read people's minds. And by that, that's not a, some cheap parlor trick. That's not some psychopathic, you know, or psych, you know, uh, his ability to, really, you know, look through that. Uh, that's really not what we're talking about. He just had uh, an innate ability through prayer, through he was subject to being like us, and yet he was God, that man-God thing, but he could really read people's mail. And he's responding to what he knew was in their heart, not necessarily what, even addressing the question that they were concerned with. Are you ready for this? Luke chapter 13, we're going to press forward here this morning. Luke chapter 13, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9, then we're going to go back and try to unpack a little bit. Are you ready for this? Come on now. I know it's August. I know you're, you know, it's a little bit hot out there and humid and everything else, but we're going to go for it. Chapter 13, verse 1, Luke. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him, Jesus, uh, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, we don't have any historical account of this, but evidently, some Galileans had come down probably to the Temple Mount. They were in the process of making some sacrifices. Maybe there was a disturbance. Something occurred, and Pontius Pilate came down hard, and here they were in the middle of their religious sacrifices... Uh, obviously a good thing to do. This would be seen as good acts, good people, good... I mean, they'd come all the way from Galilee. I mean, this is a hard trip by foot or by donkey. All the way down, ascended the mount, gone up. Uh, there they're giving sacrifices. How, In other words, how could God allow this to happen? You know, what, what what's going on here? And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? you suppose that? Now, obviously, they had this perspective of the law, if you if you do right, if you're, religious good, if you're a good religious Jew, and if you do everything right, then you're going to have long life, and they would refer to the Psalms and refer to some of the Proverbs and, and all these kinds of things, just their understanding, the Deuteronomy blessings and the Deuter- the curses of Deuteronomy, Moses standing on Mount Nebo, Nebo describing the blessings and the curses, even what we alluded to last week with Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, Ebal, here come the curses if you don't live, But from Mount Gerizim, here are the great blessings that are going to befall you if you will just live under the law. So the way they thought about things immediately, how could this have happened? Well, they must have been, you know, shysters or something. I don't know. But how could this happen? How could this happen? And Jesus responds, but he responds in a way that, you know, but, hey, the same fate can befall you unless you repent in an eternal sense. Verse 3 says, And I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will be, you will likewise perish. Or and now Jesus is going to bring up an issue, an unfair issue. Innocent people, you know, he could have brought up a tsunami or an earthquake or a tragic car accident or some kind of mental problem where there was maybe a suicide. He could have brought up a million different things, and yet he brought up this little issue. He says, What do you suppose? That those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem, I tell you no, but unless you repent, that means to change your mind, to turn around, to go a different direction in your life, don't continue on the path that you're going, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And that, again, he's referring to this in an eternal sense. I mean, he knew everybody's going to die, but he's talking about it in an eternal sense. Now, Siloam, if you don't know where Siloam is, uh, actually, John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man at Siloam. Uh, It's just south of the old city of Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Israel with me, you remember those southern steps? I do a little teaching there on the southern steps. Actually, the very steps that Jesus would have climbed, uh, much of the old city is now been, you know, broken down and rebuilt and broken down. But these southern steps would have been during the time of Jesus. Some of you remember the large steps. You kind of walk up. You can't actually enter the city that way anymore, but these steps are still there. And then down lower in uh, King David's uh, realm uh, down there when he was the king of Israel, Uh, There was this place, Siloam, and something, it could have been some aqueducts that come down, and it was fresh water. They would have been able to do ritual cleansing there and all this, and there were some towers there. No telling what they were doing, but they may have been there for some ritual purity or something. Again, a religious act, and Jesus brings that up and said, what about that tower that fell? And it killed 18 people. We see this every single day. There's something that comes across the news, and there is a tendency in our minds to do what? to say, well, is this God intervening and this is God or this is how could this happen or what's going on here and, and uh, this is the reason I don't believe in God because, well, these tragedies happen and if there was a good God like the Bible talks about, then these tragedies wouldn't happen. It happens over and over and over again. I'm going to read the next part of this and then we'll come back to it. In the latter part of the message this morning. It says, and he began telling this parable a man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, and, well, he didn't find anything. And he said to the vine- vineyard keeper, "'Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. And he cut it down, "'Why does it even use up the ground?' And he answered and said to him, "'Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in a little more fertilizer and it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not.'" then cut it down. Now, obviously, this is, as we're going to see, this is really probably a, at least in two parts. One, a reference to Israel being the fig tree. Matthew 21, Jesus very clearly kind of references Israel as being a fig tree, and He cursed it because He knew that they were going to reject Him as He was making His way to the cross, and He cursed that fig tree, and it withered, and they were all, mind, it was a mind-boggling act for them. So, Israel clearly is a picture of the fig tree, but there are some other things that will look at, towards the end, and why he brings this up in the context of these questions, these questions. What is it that's at the heart of this? Well, there's a number of things, that, that really strike us is when you think about tragedies happening. Uh, I mean, there are many tragedies going on in uh, in my life right now, and people that I love, and many of you know. And we had him up here, Jeff Hopper, dying. I mean, we're the same age, and our you know, Jeff and Laura, and Jeff and Laura, and our parents, and there was just too much crossover in 20 years of ministry, and. That could have been. They could have used that. What about Jeff Hopper? You know, he was a senior editor of Links for 20 years. He gave his life. He, he had so much impact through his journalism and through his other things on people's lives. And then cancer, I mean, a five-year battle with cancer, how's that fair? Uh, Jesus, what about that? And then you fill in the blank. Maybe you've lost a child or a spouse or something, and you just it just grates at you, and you wonder who deserves what they're getting here. Or what about the person, well, what about the person that's evil and then they, they, they have perfect health and they die at 100? I mean, how's that fair? What about maybe even a reward in time, in, in place, in space for those who are faithful, just a reward in time, and then it feels like nothing really ever goes their way, and yet they seem to be faithful people. We can just go on and on and on. You know, I I quote from this book fairly often, not because uh, I think it gives us this perspective of some diversionary tactics and some mistakes that the church has made historically by trying to attribute, anytime something happens, whether it be AIDS and attribute that or this or that, and some of these could be correct and some of these could be incorrect, but I think it's a mistake, and I think it's a mistake, and I think it gives those who are using these diversionary tactics... Uh, artillery, if you will, against the church when we make these kinds of statements as the church, when we don't really know why this happened or how it happened. God's the knower of all things, and sometimes it's the secret things that belong to the Lord. We're going to talk about that. If we read the book of Proverbs, it gives us increased odds. Always, I've been teaching through the book of Proverbs now for almost five years in a men's study, five years, and we're not even finished with it. And he said, yeah, it's because you're so slow. But we just break down one or two of these little couplets uh, at a time, and we just go line by line, and we go all over the Bible. We've been doing this for a long time. Some of you men are part of that very group, and I, and I've told you from the beginning that this gives you an increased odds of having a righteous and and wonderful life, and 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 that actually may extend your life. But it doesn't it doesn't guarantee it. It does not guarantee it. And when we start to make When we start to attribute, if I'm good, then I'm going to be wealthy and I'm going to live a long time. And if we start making those assumptions, then we'll be sadly disappointed. It may happen. It may not happen. Or at least we'll be disappointed when we observe somebody else living a righteous life. And then something tragic happens and then we'll go, what is the first thing that we do? Hmm. It calls into question both the character of God and it potentially can call into question even His Existence, and be cautious. Listen to what Christopher Hitchens says, the well-known atheist that I quote quite often, just because I was so fascinated. He was a, he was a towering intellect. He really was. He was a difficult opponent as it related to many of the lines of reasoning, and yet he was often unquestioned. Uh, he would get on uh, public television, or he'd get in various capacities, see him on television, and. And I would, I'd just get restless, and Lord would know, and I'd, I'd be stomping around. And I said, well, somebody needs to ask him this and, and counter him this, and, and, and I'd get frustrated. But he was, he was an intellect. He was an intellect. But here's, what, here's some of his observations about attributing things to God or whatever. Listen to what he says. He says, all the holy books call, talk excitedly of floods and hurricanes and lightning and other portents after the terrible Asian tsunami of 2005 and after the inundation of New Orleans in 2006, quite serious and learned men, such as the Archbishop of Canterbury, were reduced to the level of stupefied peasants. That's just his very kind of uh, tough uh, language he used. When they publicly agonized over how to interpret God's will in the matter. But if one makes the simple assumption based on absolutely certain knowledge that we live on a planet that is still cooling, has a molten core, faults and cracks in its crust, and a turbulent weather system, then there is simply no need for any such anxiety. He's talking from a naturalistic perspective and also a scientific understanding. I mean, we live in a place that's going to have these kinds of tragedies. Everything is already explained. Not true. That is an absolute not truth, but that's what he says. I fail to see why the, why the religious are so reluctant to admit this. It would be It would free them from all the futile questions about why God permits so much suffering. But apparently, this annoyance is a small price to pay in order to keep alive the myth of divine intervention. Now, Again, he takes to task what I would consider bad positioning by those who would call themselves religious. Now, he all, he dumps everybody that's a religious mind of a religious persuasion all into one camp. Not And there's always good There's good Bible thinking and there's poor Bible thinking. There's good theology, bad theology, and then obviously there are false religions. So, But he dumps everybody in, and, and this is what he goes on to say, "...the suspicion that a calamity might also be a punishment is further useful..." And now he's going to use some real uh, sarcasm, in that it allows an infinity of speculation. After New Orleans, which suffered from a lethal combination of being built below sea level and neglected by the Bush administration, I learned from a senior rabbi in Israel that it was revenge for the evacuation of Jewish settlers from the Gaza Strip. And then from the mayor of New Orleans, who had not performed his own job with exceptional prowess, that it was God's verdict on the invasion of Iraq. You can nominate your own favorite sin here, as did the Reverends Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell after the immolation of the World Trade Center. In that instance, the proximate cause was to be sought and found in America's surrender to homosexuality and to abortion. Now, these are these are men, maybe well-intentioned or otherwise, but everybody's speculating. Everybody's, and that's what they're doing here in Luke chapter 13 during the time of Jesus. Well, what about those guys? I mean, they all these Galileans making this. Herculean effort to come all the way and and sacrifice before the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is this what they deserve? Jesus, what do you do do with that? And then Jesus said, well, hey, what about this? What about that tower that fell on those 18 people down in Siloam? What are you going to do with that? I'm telling you, and then he switches it on them. If you don't repent, if you don't repent, be careful. There's a couple things that I get out of this, and I think it's important to see that God, first of all, what does the Bible say? That God blesses the righteous and the unrighteous. I want to take you to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Listen to what he says. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, that's not a conditional for salvation. It's an effective salvation for He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the righteous, and He sends rain on the unrighteous. Jesus is making it very clear that God is good to the righteous, and He's and he's good to the unrighteous. And if you don't have that as a foundational understanding, then you might look at somebody, and it might be a diversionary tactic that's crept into your mind, something that's kept you from being fruitful in the kingdom of God, and you look out and you say, well, there's Bob and Sue, and they're raging atheists. They don't believe in anything that I believe in, and yet their life's going pretty good, pretty well. I don't understand that. How can that be true? Maybe, maybe, maybe God doesn't exist, and I'm, I'm, I'm following this kind of sacrificial life of Jesus, you know, picking up my cross, and is it really necessary? Because, look, they got a better deal than I do, at least on this earth. And Jesus is pointing them immediately, what about the next life? This is but a dot on the line. What about the next life? His nature is to bless and to forgive and to love us all the way into the kingdom. Paul says this to the Romans in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? not Jerry well stepping up and saying this is an indication because of our country. I'm not saying that there aren't things that befall the United States of America because we pursue an unrighteous course of events. I'm not in any way defending I, I, you've heard me before. I, abortion is murder. I, I'll be clear with that in my, I, but why? Because I'm a biblical person. I, I read Psalm 139. It's not something that may offend some of you out there. I, I understand where it's a very divisive thing. There are times that we need to step up and say, look, this is truth and, and let's protect the unborn. I mean, there, there are times to make a stand. This is, this is a hill I am willing to, go up on like we're going to see in a minute, Mount Gilboa, and I'm going to stake my claim here. I, uh, I'm willing to say that, and unapologetically, that God in His perfection and His glory knew you in the unformed substance of the earth. He, he saw you, and He created you in His image, not just, not just based on science's ability one day to extend life, A child is now viable in unbelievable places that we could have never imagined even five years ago. The extension of life through our technology is amazing. be able to kill even a fully developed child so late in a pregnancy is is a tragedy. But I'm not going to make the statement that some tsunami or some earthquake or some, some tragedy is now, and then I began to speculate about God. God's the judge, and God has all the information. I don't. But I will point out it can be easily a diversionary tactic. Now, God is kind. God is loving. One of the reasons I believe that God uh, allows this kind of blessing towards that, it it teaches me. It trains me. If he's treating, if he's reigning on the righteous and the unrighteous, and it's kindness that leads people to repentance, that trains me on how I treat my neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. It informs it not for me out there speculating about the judgment of God. I'm willing to talk about what the Bible talks about wrath. I'm willing to, if I love somebody, to talk about an eternal separation from a loving God. You've never seen me as your pastor back off from that. But it's still the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And when I see Jesus talking in these kinds of ways and responding in these kinds of ways, oh, he wasn't afraid to get to the, the real crux of the matter and to point out people's tactics. But it just it helps me learn to be kind and loving and compassionate towards those who are yet deaf to, to the gospel and also blind to the reality of an intentional mind who created them in His very image. Now, number two, we also struggle, and this is part of why I think Jesus responds to this. We also struggle with a staggering separation that not only I had. But now in Christ, I've been brought near, and people have from their Creator. Uh, I deserve my end. I was dead. I was a million miles away from God doing my own thing with no concern about His plans or or His kingdom or His glory or even the purpose for which He created me. I was dead. And Jesus is trying to point out, don't think in terms of good people and bad people. You're all separated. You're all a million miles from God but I'm going to make the way. Jesus came to make the way back to the Father to provide intimacy. See, we just struggle to see that Ephesians 2.1, we quote it all the time, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. Dead people are also blind, and they're also deaf. So, don't be so angry with your friend who doesn't yet know Jesus or a family member, and please don't. Wax eloquent on what's holy and what's not, and all that, and try to change their behavior. If they don't have the living God on the inside of them, they're spiritually dead. We have to get this in our minds. Don't be offended by non believers. Don't be offended. Why would you be offended? Somebody ran into me, I've used this many times before. If somebody ran into me in the store and I turned around and and I saw a person with a, you know, a cane and a little dark glasses and a, a dog, a, and realized they were blind. Would I still be angry at them? Of course I wouldn't. I, I might even apologize for getting in their way. And we do the same thing with people who bump into us, and but we don't. We just think they everybody has the ability to see these things. No, they don't. They're blind. Uh, the spirit must do that, and the gospel is the tip of the sword. Isaiah 59, verse two. We miss how separated we were from God. What does it say? But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This was in relation to Israel, and there is a massive separation. Not only are they dead, they're separated. We have to understand that, and Jesus is pointing that out. Don't look over here, it's a diversionary tactic calling into question the very character of God because of some tragedy you hear about it, the fact is Jesus immediately goes to the real point, and the real point is you're separated from God, and if you don't repent, you likewise, you also will perish. Jesus understood what was going on in their heart. Everybody's has these little trying to get away, you know. If you all ever saw that movie, movie The Matrix, you know, and the, kind of everything slows down, those bullets, and they're like, so you are trying to dodge all that God stuff with all this diversionary kind of stuff, and you have just—I'm just begging. Maybe you're watching this morning. And I beg you just to stop for a second and try to extricate yourself from maybe some silly statement a preacher, TV preacher, or something else made one day that this came on and this is judgment of God. They don't know that. They don't know that for sure, and and and, and try to sit back and go, wait a minute, I, this is about me. And maybe I've been using all these things that call into question the integrity of God. because, Well, maybe because I really didn't want to think deeply about God because I wanted to continue to run my own life. I'm going to show you a quick thing in 2 Samuel chapter 19. Quick story about Mephibosheth. Many of you will know this. This is actually the grandson of King, uh, King Saul. And Jonathan was his father. And if you remember the story there were a battle on Mount Gilboa there was a battle on Mount Gilboa and both Jonathan and Saul died on that mountain and in running from the Philistines the nurse of Jonathan's son Saul's grandson Mephibosheth was running with him to try to get away and she fell and he was permanently crippled he was never had the ability to walk again because of this tragedy And then David comes back, and now he this is after this Absalom conspiracy and everything, and David comes back and is now reestablished as the king, and there's this beautiful picture of absolute grace. Now, Saul was after David and after David and after David, and Mephibosheth was, in fact, his downline. He was an enemy of the house of David in the sense that they were trying to displace him. And so, all with all this going on, David says no, but I want Mephibosheth to come and sit at my own table. Now, this is a picture of all of us because Mephibosheth is a guy that has no grounds to complain about anything. Look, this is my point this morning. I don't have grounds to complain about death, about death of my friend, about any I have no grounds to complain about anything because I was dead and now he's seated me at his very table. Why would I ever in any way impugn the character of God by my by my wonderings? Well, why did that happen? And why did this happen? And why did they why did that person why did that sweet couple who loves the Lord lose their son? And why why does it why did that marriage dissolve and that that man ran off and had an affair and left this very godly woman and where she was and and all the questions of life. And I'm not going to do that anymore. I've got no right to complain because I am Mephibosheth. And listen to what 2 Samuel 19 says. This is Mephibosheth speaking. For all my father's household was nothing but dead men before my Lord the King, yet you set your servant among those who ate at your table. What right do I have yet that I should complain anymore to the king? I want the attitude of Mephibosheth. Like, I was dead. I was crippled. I I should have been slaughtered. I, I mean, that's what happened in those days. I mean, if you had a conspiracy and somebody wins, then you take the whole family out. Otherwise, they may arise later and, and come back and, and destroy your line and your kids and your, your grandkids. I mean, be careful. Eradicate everybody. You still see that in some of these kind of demagoguing kind of places around the world. They just kill all their enemies. You know, there's no. Do you know what Mephibosheth even means, the name? From the mouth of shame. From the mouth of shame. I came from a very shameful place in my life and the Lord set me up in a beautiful place at his table, his very enemy. I was an enemy of the ways and the things of God and he set me at his table. What right do I have to complain? Because there's some tower that falls on somebody or or something happens in my life that I deem may be unfair. And i followed you all these years, Lord. I've done all these things for you. And this is the kind of this is what I get when something bad happens to me. I'm done complaining, and I'm done being shocked by death, and I'm done by all, I, I, I'm just done with, uh, I can't believe, and how could that ever happen? And, you know, I told Laura the other day, I said, I, I'm becoming more comfortable with death. I I don't see it like I used to. I, I'm not as shocked by it. I'm not as, as torn up by it. I'm just I believe that God's good. He set me at his table. I don't deserve it. What right do I have to complain? I'm ready to go about my life. Come rain, come drought. I'm still gonna I'm still gonna worship God. Does that make sense? I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. But these diversionary tactics, boy, we use them all the time. I just say quit stalling, quit quit fence sitting, if you would. Quit living with weak and elementary worldviews empowered by unexamined ideas about the very nature of God. Let's let's not allow because, well, what about? and Or what about? If there's a real God, why this? And why that? And what about? And all these different things, they're just, they're smoke screens for getting to the real issue, and that's what I think Jesus is doing here. It's not just a lecture on why you know, bad things happen to good people. He's trying to get around. He knows what's in their heart, and he knows that that root, the root of asking those questions is actually diversionary that may lead them from ever repenting. And I think that's why he's responding in this way, well, for, stop for a second. You need to repent. Otherwise, perishing, this is nothing. How about eternal separation from your loving Father? Some things just happen suddenly. We we don't understand. Hebrews 9, verse 27, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. Jesus is essentially talking. That's what he's talking about. It's appointed for man to die once. The number of our days, according to the Psalms, the number of our days are already numbered. I can't extend them or or move them. I I can't do anything. I can't. Our days are numbered. I'm not going to freak out about this anymore. I'm not going to question the character, and I'm certainly not going to question the existence of that intentional mind that created me with such... Well, he didn't have to do that at all. He didn't have to do that at all. So now the second portion of this reading, and we'll close with this, Luke 13, 6, 9. Let me read it again. And then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree, and he planted it in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, and he didn't find any. Three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding, cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he said, well, let it alone, sir, this year, and I'll dig around it, put fertilizer, and if it bears fruit next year, great. If not, then we'll cut it down. So he's, he's pleading for a little bit more mercy, a little bit more mercy. Now, what does that speak to me? Well, first of all, again, that I think I had specific application to Israel, but now let's now, let's pull, as I've, you've heard me say many times, Israel's story is our story. We learn from Israel in the physical sense, and we can learn spiritually from the nation of Israel. So, we have to be cautious that we are, in fact, being fruit producers. Are you a fruit producer? Because if you're connected to the vine, you're going to produce fruit. Or have there been little questions in the back of your mind that I can't go all the way? with my finances, with my relationships, with the way I, who I associate with, with all those things, and you find yourself pursuing other things. You don't have fidelity to the king and his kingdom in a total sense, and some things that run around in the back of your head, well, you know, you know, Bob's doing okay, and he's an atheist. Or little things, little sudden things in the back of your mind that that somehow suppress a wholeheartedness towards Jesus and the advancement of His kingdom and an intimate relationship with Him. Something holds us back. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, Paul actually, speaking to the believing Jewish community here, kind of chastises them a little. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, but you have again a need for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You should be past this. You should know your Bible. How much time are you spending in the Word? Now it's not—he's not beating them over the head. But he says, "Golly, we, haven't we talked about this before? Haven't we down this road? How can you react that way? How can you be so petty? How can you be really?" And I've—I've I've allowed this verse to just through the years. I'm, Jeff, shouldn't you be past this pettiness? Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness because he's an infant. Infants don't produce fruit. Infants don't produce fruit. That's why Jesus immediately is referring to... Brings this parable up in this context, because I think there's even believers here who are still subtly questioning the, the not the, maybe the existence of God, but his character and what he says, and the, and as a result, they just kind of float around with these hidden little diversions, and they don't realize it, and they never really connect, not in a powerful way, and it's it's damaging to their fruit production. Fruit has to become evident in our lives. Matthew chapter seven. What did Jesus say? Verse sixteen. You will know them by their fruit. Them being followers of Jesus, they don't have these questions anymore. They're finally done with the uh, "I wonder why God did and why and why and always questioning and always questioning the character of God." And again, at the f- the fountain of that is, I'm not sure that God really exists, or I'm not sure, you know. I w- They wouldn't say that out loud, but sometimes those things run around in their head. Grapes aren't gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Now, people freak out about this. I thought we're saved by grace through faith and not of works, and I'm not going to get into the whole exposition. I've actually taught on this before. But just understand, I you want to bear fruit. If you're a follower of Jesus, what's holding you back? You may have little justifications in the back of your mind. Well, what about that tower down there that fell on those people? And what about that? Uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And Cast out demons in your name, perform miracles, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Have you ever justified your own unrighteous behavior? Because, well, what about? Well, my friend died of cancer and he loved the Lord, so, you know, what's the difference for me? I mean, if God didn't step in for him and heal him, then, you know. And you just go about your business and you realize, I've gone a year or two years or five years. And I really don't have a huge indication that the the nature of Jesus is growing on the inside of me. And yet, I may do all kinds of religious activities. I may go to church. I may even serve. I may do different kinds of things. And and yet, there's not an intimacy. There's not a connection because I, I question the character of God. God is looking for fruit. The Bible's clear about that. Fruit comes from simply being born again. And being then attached to Jesus. How do we attach to Jesus? Well, you come here, we talk about these things, you respond to it, you say, Lord, forgive me, you pray, you read your word, you, 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 you do all kinds of things. There's some spiritual disciplines that allow you to help you to connect to the vine because the world is pulling you as far in the other direction as it possibly can. Politics and every other kind of thing will drag you away from an intimate relationship with your king. John 15, in closing, verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. What does that mean? To kind of live into, to live into. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he, he bears all kinds of fruit. From apart, apart from me, you just can't do anything. No fruit production is possible apart from Christ in you. You in the vine. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. I've talked about that. If you're so intimate with the Lord and, 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 and you're walking according to his will, then prayers are answered all the time. But sometimes we just throw up prayers, and we're not really abiding him, and then say, well, I said if I did it in his name. And then he goes on my father is glorified by this. Did you know your heavenly father it glorified means he comes into stark relief. He everybody can see him. My father is glorified by this that you bear a lot of fruit and prove to be my disciples. In other words, Jesus is saying my father wants you to bear fruit so that can people see see so they can see the fruit in your life and they can go, "Oh, God is true. God's real." Maybe on a Maybe I'd explore this. Maybe I want to meet that guy for coffee or meet her and go have some breakfast with her sometime or maybe even attend church at the Red Door sometime or something. Maybe there is because I can say, I want that kind of life. I want what they have. That's fruit. Not just what you do, just how you, what comes out of you, your language, your look, your smile, your, your demeanor, all those things are you reflection of Jesus, Those little hidden questions about God's character will keep you from that kind of an intimate relationship. And that's why I think that Jesus brings up this parable in the context of those questions, because they can be deterrents, diversionary tactics from really becoming intimate, or if you don't know God, they can keep you from exploring whether God exists, whether He loves you, and anything about Jesus and the gospel. Just keep you from it, like they did Christopher Hitchens and I don't know him. I don't know till the day he died, but I never got any indication he was very he was very committed to his own atheism, as far as I know, till the end of time. I, I'm certainly not the judge. God is, but I don't know that he made any now. Although his brother uh, is a follower of Jesus, pretty fascinating family dynamics there. I wonder what those family reunions look like. So, how do you escape the slavery of sin and not be sinners anymore? Well, you have to get you just. We just have to work through these subtle things that get in our heads and divert us from the fact that God is loving, irrespective of what may be going on in your life right now. Will you just become like Mephibosheth this morning and say, "What right do I have to complain? I don't have any right." There's tragedy in my life. I I, I got a bad diagnosis. I, I've got children in the zone of the Lord. I've got all. Uh, what right do I have to complain? I was a dead man. I was a dead man. King David should have killed me, and yet now he's letting me sit at his. Well, he's letting me sit right there at the table. You'll never hear a complaint out of me anymore. I can't believe I just said that with my wife being here, but <laughs> anyway, she can hold. She can hold me to that but I'm not going to ever bring her up here to give a testimony. But my intention is to never have a complaint because I know that I am a Mephibosheth. I have no right to complain or to question the very character of God. So we're going to close with this song. And uh, at the end of the song, I'm going to have Miss Lisa come up and close us in prayer because she is such a fantastic teacher. And she, I didn't tell her that, and she went, oh, no. I but I want her to close us in prayer. Uh, because she is a great teacher of the word, and I know for a fact, because her husband Major Major, uh, right, her, Mike Major and Lisa, I know for a fact how much time she spends in the word. And I get this reported to me from Mike too, daily, just in the word, in the word, in the word. And so she's she's a fruit bearer. So I'm, her prayer will after the song will close, and then I'll meet you as you make your way out. But we're gonna we're gonna listen to this last worship song, and you. In fact, let's let's stand. Let's stand for this last worship song. Let's let's get stretch out a little bit. Let's make sure we have a have a mic up here for them, Uh, uh, guys. If we can get a mic, make sure Lisa has a mic. And uh, no longer slaves. You're no longer a slave. You're not mephibosheth. You were dead, but now. And if you haven't been, you can be. You can sit at the table. Just say, Jesus, I determined to follow you today.